Genesis 13, 1 through 18. And as usual, I want to encourage you to have your own copy of Scripture open and be reading along with me as we look at God's Word together. And before we do, let's go to him again in prayer and ask him to bless the preaching of his Word. Let's pray. Our God, we dare not take up uh, a practice or anything by which you minister to your people without calling on you to bless We know unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. We need you every hour. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come with great power and that you would minister to our souls, that you would give us understanding, that you would open our minds and our hearts, that you would bless the preaching and the receiving of your word, and that you would change us by it. We do pray that you would mature us and sanctify us and prune us and give us humble and receptive hearts to sit at the feet of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We are looking at Genesis 13, beginning in verse 1. Picking up on that Abraham narrative, we now read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land." Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in one of the most memorable statements in church history made by any minister of the gospel, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was asked in the 1960s why he had given up a lucrative uh, uh, ministry as a physician in the UK, and and a reporter asked him as she interviewed him wh- why he would give up all that to go into ministry. And as some of you know, Martin Lloyd Jones went on to be one of the most powerful ministers in church history. There was a story 
perhaps I've told you of a witch who visited uh, Westminster Chapel and heard Lloyd-Jones preach and said, there's power, there is real power in that man. I feel the power in him. God's hand was heavy upon Lloyd-Jones. And when that reporter and others, it's recorded, would ask him, you know, you gave up so much. You gave up this lucrative ministry as a doctor. You gave up all the money and all the the travels and everything else that come with that. Lloyd-Jones responded, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God confers on any man to call him to herald the gospel. I gave up nothing. I received everything. A very powerful statement. And I tell you that this morning because as we come to Genesis 13, which is so pregnant with lessons for us, it really is focusing on Abram giving up everything, relinquishing all of his selfish, fleshly ambitions, and trusting the Lord. We're actually told for the first time in the scriptures, uh, the first time that someone was rich. Abram was very rich. He was not He was not uh, some poor man that needed Christianity as a crutch. He was was smart. He was wise. He amassed great riches, and yet God called him to trust him. God called him to set his heart on what God had promised, not on what God had given him. To set his heart on the eternal inheritance that God had promised him by faith, not to set his heart on earthly ambitions. There's a contrast that you'll see quite clearly in this chapter between Abram and his nephew Lot. As Lot lifts his eyes and he goes and he sees all the well-watered plains and he picks for himself the beautiful places and the places of resources and, and Abram trusts the Lord and follows the Lord and essentially says, the Lord will provide. I gave up nothing. I received everything. And so we're going to see this morning these three things. First, we're going to see Abram worshiping the God of promise by faith. And then secondly, we're going to see him trusting the God of promise to provide by faith. And then we're going to see him strengthened by the God of promise in faith. And so as we look at this this morning, we're going to see first Abram worshiping the God of promise. Now, it's interesting because you might think as you read through the Genesis narrative that there are things that Moses puts in there just to animate the narrative. There are phrases, there are little things like the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land and Abram was rich. He had much livestock and gold and silver. These are not just haphazard details. These aren't meant to just give color to the narrative. These are vitally important theological statements. Moses is telling us at the outset, pay very close attention to what's about to be said, because when we look at Abram, and Abram has just recovered from that great fall. In chapter 12, the first section, he is called by God. It is the call of Abram. And then he goes down to Egypt and out of fear, trying to lay hold of resources and self-preservation, and he falls. He gives his wife over to the king, yet God restores him. He restrains the king. He restores Abram. He brings Abram out of Egypt. Abram comes out with more riches, more possessions. And yet Abram goes to the altar. We saw that in our last study together, that the first thing that Abram does is he goes to the place of repentance. He returns to the Lord. He realizes that so much of the Christian life is returning after you've fallen. And notice that Moses tells us, that he comes out of Egypt, he comes out with all these great possessions, he and his wife, all that he had, lot with him, to the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. I think that Moses is highlighting the wealth of Abram for several reasons. Number one, it is not in and of itself a bad thing. Um, 
While the overwhelming teaching of scripture is about the danger of wealth, and while there is very minimal teaching in scripture about the blessing of wealth, I want to reiterate that this morning, the overwhelming teaching of scripture is about the danger of wealth. We are all, most of us, very wealthy. There are great dangers. And there is very little in scripture that talks about the blessing of wealth. Nevertheless, here is a man who was wealthy, and God called him, and God redeemed him. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, not many rich are called. Jesus will say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And yet, here's a rich man. Here's a man who basically owns a small country. It's the best way to think about Abram. He has 318 servants. We're going to see him engaged in battle in the next chapter. He is going to take on an emperor over five nations. He's going to defeat him with his little army of servants in his house. Abram functionally has a little country. He is very wealthy. And it's possible because the scriptures teach everywhere the danger of trusting in money. You either trust in God or money. That's Jesus reduces everything down to that. The whole of life is reduced down to you either trust in the living God or you trust in the unrighteous mammon. And Abram very easily could have began to trust. He was accumulating wealth. He was gaining wealth. He was amassing for himself more and more as he came out of Egypt, out of that most bountiful country. And as God has now restored him, he doesn't trust in his wealth. The the really striking thing about Abram is that he does not trust in his wealth. Um, I do want to say this this morning. The Proverbs, if if you are a person given to trusting in money, um, and all of us do, to some extent, far too much. The Proverbs are a good place to go. They talk about riches flying away like birds. That's not a good God to have. Just keep going after birds that just fly away. Um, Abram trusts the Lord. Notice, no sooner are we told that he was rich in livestock and silver and gold, we're told he journeyed to the place where he had been at the beginning. He went back to Bethel, to the place, verse 4, where he had made an altar at the first. The remarkable thing about Abram is that while he was arguably one of the richest people in those days, his main commitment and the longing of his heart was to worship the Lord. He went back to the altar. He went back to the gospel. He went back to the place where he knew he needed his sins forgiven because he sinned in Egypt. He went back and he worshiped the Lord. And I think Moses is highlighting this for Israel. He's highlighting it for us that what God wants more than anything, the one thing that God wants from you, and I don't have to know you. It doesn't matter. We're We're all descended from the same parents. We all have the same God that holds our breath in in his hands, who owns all our ways. And the one thing that he wants from us is he wants us to be worshipers. That is the overwhelming testimony of scripture, that the one thing God wants from you is not to have a great career, security, a good retirement, good benefit, kids that are doing good, grandkids that are beautiful in their pictures. That's not. That is not at all. As good as those things may be, that is not what the Lord wants for his people. He wants us to be worshipers. And so he highlights for us that Abram comes to the place where he'll worship. Um, I want to ask you this morning just briefly, if you take a sort of inventory check of your life and you ask, 
And what do you give the better part of your time, energy to? What do you value the most? What do people that know you say, mark you? They look at your life. Others say, you know, that's a person who is committed to worshiping the Lord. That's a person who is committed to calling on the name of the Lord, to being in the place of worship, to telling others about him, to wanting others to come and worship with him. Or, as it is so true with everybody else, is a person driven by ambition or uh, attempt to get more money and make another dollar and and get more security and and do more things to just enjoy life and have a good life. And, And God would call us back and he'd say, are you a worshiper? Is that the characteristic aspect of your life and my life? And we have to honestly deal with our hearts. And notice that no sooner has he come to worship the God of promise by faith, and Abram can only do this by faith. I want to just point that out, that it is faith in Christ that enables us to worship Christ. It is faith in Christ that enables us to to lift our hearts off of the money, off of the status, off of everything else that takes us away, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, trusting the God of promise, trusting that he has said, I will bless you in the Lord Jesus. I will give you eternal life. I will forgive your sins. I will bring you to myself forever. I will lavish my love upon you. I will pour my grace out on you for all of eternity is what enables us to take our hearts off the futile efforts of running after the things of this world. And God would tell us here. He would tell us, and and very clearly, there's a word here for us that we too would be men and women of faith like Abram. But notice, secondly, that there's a test, and Abram has to learn to trust the God of promise again. You know, very interesting. We often think that when we've had some trial or test, I think this, maybe, maybe you don't, but I think we probably all do. We've had a trial or a test, some challenge. We fail, perhaps. Maybe we make it through. God brings us through. We acknowledge that the Lord has brought us through. We've called on him. He's healed us. He's restored us. He sent restraining grace and restoring grace. And then we think, okay, time of peace for me. And there's another trial and another trial. And we just want the green pastures. Just give me some peace for a time. But the interesting thing about the Abram narrative is that God sends trial after trial. No sooner has he come out of Egypt and passed through that great trial and testing from the Lord that there's another test. And um, I think it's important for us to see that while um, at one and the same time, Genesis 13 is teaching us that wealth is not in and of itself a bad thing. Abram's a believer and he has great wealth. That it brings with it problems. We're told that um, Abram had these great, great possessions. And notice verse 5, and Lot, first time we've really heard about Lot. We didn't know he was with Abram. He shouldn't have been with Abram. Abram told, God told Abram, get out of your father's house from your people, get out, leave them for whatever reason. They must have been close. Abram took Lot. God is going to deal with that. He's going to separate them with the strife. But notice verse five that we're told that Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. This was an industrious family. And as their businesses grew and as their portfolios grew, And as their bank accounts grew, there was more strife. And, you know, I've reflected on this for years. There was a time when Anna and I lived in Center City, Philadelphia, and I really fell in love with cement because you never had to mow cement or weed cement. Um, 
I mean, it didn't look nice, but easy to take care of. We had a little 1,200-square-foot apartment. It was cozy. It was nice. Life was simple. Then you get a bigger house, and you get a yard, and you get weeds. And the more you get, the more it takes away your life. And the more you're just in the hamster wheel of trying to stay afloat. And you see that as Abram and Lot are amassing their possessions and their wealth, that the problems and the challenges come. Notice verse 6, they're in a barren land. They're, they're really in the wilderness. They're in the desert. There's not a lot of water. There's not a lot of grass and vegetation. Verse 6, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. You see, even the interpersonal tensions brought about by money. I'll never forget when Anna and I did premarital counseling, the man we went to see said to us, uh, 99% of all problems in marriage are over money. He's right. And here, God is highlighting that even among brethren, even among kinsmen, that there were strains created because of the possessions that they had. And notice verse 7, that as tensions mounted, as um, the trial escalates, we're told there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, I I think, first of all, I want to say there's never strife between Abram and Lot because Abram deals in a godly way. That's going to be a huge point I'm going to make in a minute. I just made it. I'll make it again and explain it. But... There's a question, as the herdsmen are getting in this fight with each other, as they're fighting over who's going to get the water, where are we going to go, and we need water, and our cattle need water, and we need grass, and we need this, notice that we're told at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, the question we have to ask is why? Why does Moses mention that? Why does he bring in the Canaanites and the Perizzites? I think... I think the reason is because God is highlighting that there's always a temptation for believers to bicker and for strife to sink into the church and among other believers and in Christian homes in the midst of an ungodly world that is watching on. I think that's the reason why Moses put that in there. There is the world, and Abram is living by faith in the midst of wicked people. We're going to be told all about the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They sacrificed their children to their gods. These were not good, innocent, ancient Near Eastern people. They were barbaric. And they are watching on, and here is the test. The test is, will Abram and Lot, and especially Abram, the father of the faith, the one to whom all the promises were given, the one through whom the Redeemer is going to come, is he going to live a godly life in the midst of a wicked world? Is he going to be careful with what he does? I actually think, and I, I know I can't prove this, But I actually think the way that Abram responds to Lot, because Moses mentions the Canaanites and the Perizzites living in the land, that the way in which Abram responds is in correlation to that fact, that he is taking that into consideration, that for him, as he surveys what's happening, he realizes not only is Lot his kinsman, but they're they're living in the midst of a wicked world, wanting an opportunity to heap scorn on the truth, wanting an opportunity to reject anything that Abram or Lot might say about the promises of God and the true and the living God as over against all the idols of the nations that are not God's. Abram is factoring in his walk before the Lord in the midst of a wicked world. And notice in verse 8 that Abram deals in the wisest and most godly way because he is believing the promise of God. Notice that Moses now tells us, Then Abram said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. I think that Abram is saying, now, this is going to become complicated because you really have to know the breadth of Scripture to get this. All we ever see about Lot is failure. That's all we're ever going to see about Lot in the whole of the Bible, except we're told that he rebuked the wicked people in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the only thing we're ever told. And yet he's called righteous Lot. You would never know that Lot is in heaven based off of the account in Genesis. He gets drunk. His daughters sleep with him. Um, Epic failure. Evil nations come from that. Epic failure everywhere in Lot's life. And yet, I think Abram took Lot with him in part because Lot was believing what God said to Abram. Lot was going with Abram, believing that God was going to give this inheritance to him. Lot was a believer. He was the weakest believer. He was a believer of unbelievable failure that stands out as a model for us to avoid. But he goes with Abram, and Abram says to him, are we not kinsmen? I think Abram is functionally saying, are we not spiritual brethren? Not just, are we not blood relatives? You know, Jesus made a huge point about the family of faith when he said, and he rejected his mother and his brothers when uh, the crowds came and said, Lord, your mother and brothers are out here and, and they can't get through. And he said, these are my mother and my brothers. Everyone who hears my word and keeps it. And so notice that Abram is taking all of these things in. He's taking the wicked world in. He's taking in the, the, the fact that Lot is his kinsman spiritually, that he is a fellow believer. And so Abram does the godly thing. You know, I think this passage of scripture, it's amazing how little airtime this chapter gets in sermon series. If you look online, you'll find a few, not many. I think that this chapter has some of the greatest pastoral counsel for divisions in the church in the entirety of the Bible. If Abram had said to Lot, Lot, I'm older than you. God promised me all the land. You're just piggybacking with me anyway. You need to go over there, which is what most people would do. This is mine. God has said, I'm giving you this. This is mine. There's some land over there. Go over there and get it. I need the better resources. I need to be preserved. I need to look out for myself. I need to look out for my family. I need to look out for my 318 servants. You go over there. But notice what does Abram do? And oh, that people in the church would learn this. He defers. He says, look, the whole land's before us. You go left, I'll go right. It's really north and south. They got turned around in the ancient Near East. You'll see that in a minute. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. He defers. He's trusting the God of promise. He knows that God has given him promises. He knows that God is going to provide. He doesn't take it into his hand to secure at this point. It's really a magnificent example of faith in the God of promise, when there is strife and contentions brewing, that people in the church, oh, please listen to me this morning, oh, that people in the church would learn from Abram and would say, I will defer to my brothers and my sisters. It doesn't mean deferring to sin. It doesn't mean never defending yourself when you're unjustly treated. But it does mean that the church ought to factor in two things. We as believers ought to factor in two things. One, the world is watching. And they hate us, and they want an occasion 
to use against us. And if they see people in the church infighting and people wanting their own ways and asserting themselves and trying to get their own ways all the time, which is just worldly, I want to say that this morning. That is the worldliest, fleshliest thing we can do. Lot is fleshly. You know, I almost never tell you, be like so-and-so in the Bible, because I hate that. Trust Jesus. Be like Abram, not like Lot. That's the big first lesson, is Abram, trust the Lord. Be like Abram, not like Lot. Learn to take the promises of God. Learn to defer to your brothers and sisters. Learn to care deeply for them. Learn Uh, In the words of Paul in Philippians 2, learn to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself, who took to himself the form of a bondservant, who emptied himself. Because if anybody could have come and said, you will do what I say and you will give me what is mine, it's God. And he came and he humbled himself and he took the form of a bondservant and he emptied himself of any dignity that he had in the divine nature. And he went forward and he marched in lowliness as servant of all to the cross. And he tells us, Jesus tells us in that great parable uh, of the wedding feast that we're to take the lowest place, that we should defer, that we should always want to be in the place of humility and meekness, not in the place of self-assertion, not in the place of, I want my voice to be heard. I want this. That's mine. This is my right. And so notice as we look at this together that Abram does the godly thing. He's trusting the Lord to provide. We are told that Lot by way of contrast in verse 10, lifted his eyes, saw the Jordan Valley, was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, and he chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Now, I I don't know if this is intended per se. I think it is. There does seem to be this parallel between Eve in the garden and Lot as he looks at what is said to be the well-watered garden. That seems an intentional connection to me. And, and we're told in Genesis that Eve, though God had promised to give Adam and Eve everything, all the bounty, all the trees of the garden are yours, but this one tree, and it was a test. It was a trial. Would they trust the God who had given them everything and obey him on the one thing that he had asked them to obey him? And, and we're told that Eve saw, she took, and she ate. We are told almost the same language. Notice verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes. He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. So, verse 11, he chose for himself. He chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Now, I I do wonder, and we'll talk about this in the weeks ahead, if Lot's wife was not behind his decision. Jesus will say, remember Lot's wife? Um, when, when they are fleeing Sodom, um, her heart is longing for the world. It's longing for the things of the world. And, and so Lot is making this decision. He's walking by sight. You know, I, I titled this sermon, By Faith, Not By Sight, because really everything in the Christian life is reduced down to that. Are we going to believe God's word? Are we going to wait on the Lord? Are we going to continue to sit at the feet of Jesus? I've often actually thought, you know, Lot chose the well-watered valley. He chose the best place with the best resources so he could get ahead. And Abram, by way of contrast, like Mary, uh, Jesus will say, who sat at his feet and heard his word, Jesus says she chose the better part. When we, when we defer and say, I am going to trust the Lord, 
Yes, I have to work hard. Yes, I have to make wise decisions. Yes, we've got to use the brain God gave us. If, if you say that to your kids, maybe don't say that a lot. But yes, I know that. But, but we have to trust the Lord. We have to trust him. And notice that we're told that Lot walks by sight. And notice that God gives that little prelude to what's going to happen. Notice verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. There's very interesting progression in this chapter where Lot is actually progressing closer and closer and closer into Sodom. He first goes to the valley. Then Moses says he moves his tent and he goes closer. And by chapter 19, he is in the middle of the city. He is fully entrenched in Sodom. And he is the only righteous man in Sodom. But he has moved into the very epicenter of what here we're told was an exceedingly wicked city. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know that you're probably racing ahead to chapter 19. We're going to get there. And I know questions some of you might have about, you know, what the scriptures say about sexual sin. I want to read to you, though, what Ezekiel says about Sodom. And, And I didn't know this was in the Bible until this week. Actually, one of those wonderful moments for me. Um, Ezekiel 16:49, the Lord tells Israel in the brink of their rebellion as they are in captivity in, in Babylon, he says, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter, that's Gomorrah, had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. I thought that was fascinating that what Sodom and Gomorrah are known for by way of wickedness, is not what God highlights later in the prophets, that it was the bounty and the luxury, the self-centeredness, the complacency, the idleness, the lack of care for people. It was the supreme selfishness. All of those things are the manure in which the depravity of the heart grows. It fuels the depravity of the heart. Lot chose the most beautiful place, but that was the place where depravity was thriving the most. Um, I think we would do well to examine our lives against these things and say, the decisions I make, are they driven by a desire to please the Lord, to trust in him, to bring him glory, to bring him honor, to uh, abide in his word, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, or are they just desires for nice things and nice places? Uh, Again, nothing wrong with enjoying beauty and creation. Ecclesiastes says, And I've really been thankful for this verse in recent years. There's nothing better for a man to do than to eat and drink and enjoy the fruit of his labors. It's good. But if that's what men are living for, if that's what's consuming and fueling the depravity of the heart, then it's evil against the Lord. And it results in every other kind of perversion and wickedness and self-centeredness and idolatry, worship of self. That's really, Lot was falling into the trap of worshiping self. But notice that we are told that Abram went to Canaan. Now, he doesn't have possession of Canaan yet. He's still trusting God. Um, But, and I want to read this to you, S.G. DeGraff. This is a really wonderful thought about Abram's decision. He says, a Canaan separate from the promises made to Abram is a Canaan separate from the Christ who would issue from Abram's loins. Anyone who possesses something apart from Christ and without giving thanks to him does not really possess it. Actually, it possesses him. He cannot really enjoy it because he's always looking for something better. 
Lot progressing deeper and deeper into Sodom, always looking for the next better thing. He doesn't really possess it. He didn't really get what he was seeking. Abram, by way of contrast, doesn't yet possess Canaan, but it's as good as done. God has said, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to send the redeemer of the world, the God that we worship, is going to come in the flesh through Abram, and Abram is trusting God in the midst of this trial and this tension with Lot. I want to say just briefly that what we see in the division of Abram and Lot is really God's hand of providence. You know, Moses doesn't tell us explicitly that uh, this is what the Lord was doing and why he was doing it, but very clearly God is separating Abram. He is saying, I will make sure that you are separate so that you will be the heir of the inheritance and that the son of Abram would be the separate one. You know, as I reflected on this, I thought, it's very interesting. We've talked about the idea of separation in Genesis. God is always separating and dividing. There at creation and then in the new creation, he's always separating. He separates Abram out from the world. He takes him out from the world. Now he separates him from Lot. And when we think about the son of Abram, his whole life is moving to the point where he is going to be separated from everyone who were his friends and his family in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes out into the no man's land of isolation. He goes further alone until he goes to the cross alone because he alone will be the heir of the eternal inheritance. The son of Abram would be separated, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He would be separated from everyone he loved and cared about in order to love them to the end and to secure the eternal inheritance on the cross. And then he's separated from his father. He is cast out in eternal judgment. The wrath of God for our sins falls on the son of Abraham so that we could receive the inheritance that we too are hoping in by faith. That's all of the separation of Abram in this narrative, I think, is moving to teach us about the separateness of the Lord Jesus, who by himself, the writer of Hebrews says, purged, our sins by himself. He would be the separate one who would go and do what he alone could do. Well, third and, and finally, we see that Abram's faith is now strengthened by promise. I, I think this is really important for us to get as we work through Genesis. You're going to see that the promises that God initially gave Abram in, in verses 1 through 3, those initial kind of seed form promises, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to bless you, anybody that curses you, I'm going to curse all the blessing of Jesus Christ is going to come through Abram. The nations are going to be blessed in him. And, and those promises in the seed form, what God does throughout the life of Abram is after Abram endures a trial, God strengthens him with the promises. I think that that is massively instructive to us because I have learned in my own life, whenever God brings me through a trial, his word is sweeter. I understand it in new ways. He reveals new things. He strengthens me and restores me with the promises that he's already given me, that I already know. And God is going to do that with Abram repeatedly. Notice, Abram does what he does. He acts out of faith. He is the godly one. And notice verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now the trial's passed. And the Lord says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward and westward. Now, I love this because Abram had said to Lot, you go right, I'll go left. You go left, 
I'll go right. And God says, you look north, you look south, you look east, you look west, I'm giving everything. The eternal inheritance in Christ. We're going to be heirs of the world. You know how futile it will be on Judgment Day if we have not gotten this. And we have spent our lives, like Lot, running after the well-watered plains, being possessed by possessions, and we fail to see that God says, I will give you everything if you will trust me, if you will look to my son by faith, if you will repent of your sins, if you will put your trust in me, if you will listen to my word, if you will abide in my word, if you will follow where I've already gone for you, if you will come to me, I'll give you rest and I'll give you an everlasting inheritance. And notice God strengthens Abram's faith. He says to him, For all the land you see, I'll give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Now, let me say this to you this morning. He is not talking about ethnic Israel. He is talking about those who are true children of Abraham by faith. That's the whole point of the New Testament. That's on like every page in the New Testament. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's. Abraham was a man of faith. If you trust in Jesus, you are one of those descendants, those spiritual offspring, children of Abraham, the true Israel of God, the heirs of the promise in Jesus Christ, whose number is like the dust of the earth and the sand of the sea. I remember the first time, and it hurts your head if you've ever done this, where you take a cup and you go out to the the beach and you fill it up, and you start to like pour it out and try to count the grains of sand. I don't know, maybe I was like five or six. And then you think about it when you get older, it hurts your head even more. Like that's just one cup of sand from one beach on the planet. And God said that Abram's descendants, and remember, Abram has no children. He has no children. But God strengthens him in faith again. When we go through the trials and we have trusted the Lord or we have fallen and then repented and been restored and we, we go forward again in trusting him, God continually strengthens us with his promises. When Satan comes in and he tempts you and he says, you know, you messed up again this week, you're, you're not a Christian because a Christian would never do that and you just keep failing and you keep sinning, you go back to the God of promise and you remember the promises of scripture and you go back to him and confess your sin, you go back to Bethel, you go back to Bethel. You go back to worshiping him. You go back to confessing your sins. You go back to calling on him and trusting him. You go back, you go back, and then you go forward. You go back to the cross, and you go forward to glory. Notice the last thing Abram does in response to the strengthening of promise. And and I'm sure that Abram was downcast. You know, again, I can't prove this, but I am sure it grieved Abram in his heart. He liked Lot enough to take him along. I mean... You all, maybe you have big families. There are people you wouldn't take in a big family on a long journey. I mean, there are in-laws people don't want to go see. So, you know, nephews, second cousins. Abram liked Lot enough to take him with him. I'm sure Abram's heart was grieved 
about the separation. I'm sure that Abram was downcast. I'm sure that he was weary and discouraged. He may have even been at the point where his faith was sort of shaken momentarily. But God comes in. God strengthens him with the promises. And notice what Abram does, his last act in this chapter. Abram, verse 18, moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The first thing Abram did when he was called was he went to Bethel and built an altar, worshiped, sacrificed, said, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I need redemption. I need the God of promise and, and how I'm going to get that promise from him. And then after his fall in Egypt, the first thing he does is he goes and he worships. And then after God strengthens him in faith, after this grueling trial with Lot, he goes and he worships. I want to say this as we close just briefly. Um, it is very easy, and I, I remember hearing this as a young Christian. I didn't understand it experientially then. I do now to some extent. Many people start the Christian life, and they have a little bit of zeal. They seem very excited, and then it just kind of flickers out. It's kind of, they just burn out. The excitement was just sort of a flare. It wasn't, it wasn't a genuine work of God in the soul. Many people like that. There are others who, for a while, and, I, and I've had to face this sad reality that I have had friends in ministry walk away from the Lord and from ministry, and more importantly, from the Lord because of sexual sin. And maybe, probably not converted. But they were in ministry. They preached the same things you're hearing. They knew theology well. But when the trials came, they gave into the flesh, they gave into sin, their hearts were hardened, they burned out. Abram is an example to us. He goes from worship to worship to worship to worship until he's in glory worshiping God. That is the life of a Christian. Yes, there's failings. Yes, there's weaknesses. Yes, there are challenges. But true believers, and I'm going to ask you this morning to, to ask these questions, am I a worshiper? Is what characterizes my life that I love supremely above all other things? And, and even when my life shows that I don't, I long to have that true about me, and I'm crying out to the Lord that I am a worshiper. And then secondly, I'd ask if you are trusting the God of promise and if that's evidencing itself in, in your interactions in the church with other believers. Are you somebody who defers? Or are you somebody that demands that you're going to get your way, you're going to get your point across, you're going to get what's yours because that's what's right? Or are you willing to defer like Abram? Abram was a gentle, meek, deferential believer. That was a characteristic mark that he was trusting the God of promise. And then finally, are you being strengthened? I hope you are. I hope that if you're in Christ, you are going back to the scriptures and being strengthened in God's word. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the abundance of what you teach us in the scriptures. We're thankful for every word that you have breathed out. We're thankful for these lessons from the life of Abram and how they are relevant to us today and, and come to us with the same force with which they came to those first readers of Genesis. We thank you that you are the same God, the God of promise, the God who calls us and who restores us and who tries us and tests us and who brings us out and strengthens us. 
We pray that you would strengthen us this morning. We pray that you would send out your promises in great measure, that you would strengthen us in faith that we, like Abram, might run the race set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.